Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 19, the book of Matthew, chapter 6. Our duty and our hope as followers of Messiah Yeshua is to place our feet into His footprints. The Sermon on the Mount is showing us the way. Matthew recognizes how crucial Yeshua's speech is, and so he takes three full chapters to record it. And we've completed only the first, which is chapter 5. Today, we begin Matthew chapter 6. So, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that's on page 1229, Matthew chapter 6. Be careful not to parade, parade your acts of tzedakah in front of people in order to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you do tzedakah, don't announce it with trumpets to win people's praise, like the hypocrites in the synagogues and on the streets. Yes, I tell you, they have their reward already. But you, when you do your tzedakah, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Then your tzedakah will be in secret, and your father, who sees what you do in secret, will reward you. Now when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray standing in the synagogues and on street corners so that the people can see them. Yes, I tell you, they have their reward already. But you, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and then pray to your Father in secret. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't babble on and on like the pagans, who think God will hear them better if they talk a lot. Don't be like them, because your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. You, therefore, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us the food we need today. Forgive us what we've done wrong, as we too have forgiven those who have wronged us. And do not lead us into hard testing, but keep us safe from the evil one. For kingship and power and glory are yours forever. Amen. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will not forgive yours. Now when you fast, don't go around looking miserable like the hypocrites. They make sour faces so that people will know they're fasting. Yes, I tell you, they have their reward already. But you, when you fast, wash your face, groom yourself so that no one will know you're fasting except your Father who is with you in secret. Your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. 
Do not store up for yourselves wealth here on earth, where moths and rust destroy and burglars break in and steal. Instead, store up for yourselves wealth in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and burglars do not break in or steal. For where your wealth is, there your heart will also be. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if you have a good eye, that is, if you're generous, your whole body will be full of light. But if you have an evil eye, if you're stingy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can be a slave to two masters. For he will either hate the first and love the second, or scorn the second and be loyal to the first. You can't be a slave to both God and money. Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life. What you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Isn't life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds flying about. They neither plant nor harvest, nor do they gather food into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Now aren't you more worth more than they are? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to his life? Why be anxious about clothing? Think about the fields of wild irises and how they grow. They neither work nor spin thread. Yet I tell you that Shlomo, Solomon, in all of his glory was clothed as beautifully as one of these. If this is how God clothes grass in the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, thrown into an oven, won't he be much won't he much more clothe you what little trust you have? So don't be anxious asking what will we eat, what will we drink? Or how will we be clothed? For it's the pagans who set their hearts on all these things. Your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and then all these things will be given to you as well. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Today has enough tsuris already. Verse 1 sets up the basic theme for the next several verses. Motive. Motive. This is why we choose to do the things we do. Our motive. The last half of the previous chapter, chapter 5, starting at verse 21, dealt with intent. A contrast is set up here. And here to begin chapter 6, between the deeds and acts we do outwardly versus what we harbor in our minds. And what we see and what we find is that what we think inwardly has everything to do with how God sees and rewards us, including for the things we do outwardly based on our motive for doing them. See, Paul picks up on this principle of the inward versus the outward in Romans chapter 2. 
So he injects this principle even into the matter of our spiritual identity before the Lord. That is, despite what we might display or we we might want to project superficially, it's what's on the inside that counts the most. Listen to him. Listen to Paul in Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. For the real Jew is not merely Jewish outwardly. True circumcision is not only external and physical. On the contrary, the real Jew is one inwardly, and true circumcision is of the heart, spiritual, not literal, so that his praise comes not from other people, but from God. So even before we begin to delve deeper into what follows in Matthew 6, we understand this enormous value that God places on motive and intent. Motive and intent. These are perhaps greater than the deed itself, to the point that doing a positive deed with an evil intent is a greater sin than doing a negative deed but having a righteous intent even if misguided in carrying it out. Let me say this another way, because I I get questions nearly daily about how to live a Torah-directed lifestyle. I get these from people wanting to know specific do's and don'ts in various situations that they find themselves. Having a righteous intent, and I define that as having a sincere intent to obey God, as based upon his biblical commandments and not on our own feelings and emotions and and our sense of justice. But then our deed winds up causing harm or maybe offense. Well, that's either not a sin at all or the sin is treated by God with great mercy. However, no matter how great a good deed, that we might do. Without the intent to obey and the motive to please God, but rather it's done with the intent to draw praise and and recognition to ourselves, that's always a sin. Now verse 1, according to the complete Jewish Bible, speaks of acts of doing tzedakah, tzedakah. Now although that Hebrew word isn't here, David Stern is correct and assuming that this must necessarily be the Hebrew word that that was in Matthew's mind as he was writing his gospel. What we find in the Greek Bible manuscripts is an attempted translation of that word. And in Greek, he uses dekeosuni. Dekeosuni. It means righteousness in the sense of justice. And that's fairly close to the mark. Literally, tzedakah means righteousness. However, its usage in Hebrew culture and language actually meant, and catch this, doing righteousness. Doing righteousness. It's a verb. It's an action that expresses doing a deed that more often than not was directly connected to giving. 
whether it was a tithe, whether it was an act of charity. Therefore, the subject is righteous giving. Christ next follows up with some examples and instructions about exactly how we do that. Now, the first instruction is to not perform these acts of righteous giving in order to get personal recognition or credit from people. Planned or spontaneous giving has always been part of Hebrew society, and the sincerely pious generally made it their highest priority. But we find in all eras that people will have ulterior motives for giving, among which is praise from others and the outward appearance of piety, but always for their personal benefit. So they expect to be publicly recognized and admired, maybe even given honorary status when that giving occurs. Now Jesus' response to this is that while they may well receive what they're hoping for from their fellow man, they'll receive nothing further from the Father in heaven for giving with such a wrong attitude. Motive. Intent. The deed itself was good. The intent was wrong. And so a potentially good thing in the eyes of God is turned into sin. Yeshua is cautioning his listeners that there is this stark difference that centers on the giver of the rewards. It is between the rewards we receive from our fellow man versus the rewards we receive from heaven. I want you to pay attention to the fact that Christ is going to emphasize the Father in the next several verses. That is, despite the implication within some branches of the church that the Father has kind of taken a, a long vacation, turned everything over to his son Yeshua, Yeshua dispels it all. It is he, Jesus, who, rather, it is not Jesus who determines rewards, it is the Father. Jesus himself says so. Now, verse 2 begins with, So when you do tzedakah, now this time the Greek word chosen to translate that Hebrew word is elimosuni, and it refers directly to the giving of mercy in the sense of giving alms, giving charity. In Christ's day, other than what was given to the temple for offerings and for tithes, when giving to the synagogue, the money was used mostly for caring for the needy. Now, no doubt, some was kept for upkeep, maybe other legitimate expenses. At other times, money was given directly by people to some of the thousands of licensed beggars who often congregated in certain places where there was lots of foot traffic. And Yeshua says, when someone makes a contribution, trumpets should not be blown for the purpose of drawing the crowd's attention to the giver. Now, 
A question that's often debated among theologians, and especially among Bible historians, is if this trumpet blowing was literal or if Yeshua just kind of used it metaphorically. To date, no Jewish document has been found to confirm that the blowing of trumpets upon giving charity or tithes actually occurred in Jewish society. However, since Christ actually did say it, and there is no record of a standard Jewish expression of blowing a trumpet, that would mean to try again to, to, to gain recognition, very likely then this did happen occasionally. Yeshua had observed it. It upset him. And so he used it as kind of a, a blatant example of what not to do when giving alms. Now, I actually saw this. I saw it in person, in action, in a synagogue that I visited some years ago. They had an offering time. And up on the stage, this elevated stage, there was a bucket placed for givers to get up out of their seats, walk up to the front of the congregation, and put their money into it. And each time somebody dropped their donation into the bucket, a trumpet was loudly blown and the congregation applauded. Now what bothered me all the more was that this was a messianic synagogue, a synagogue of believers. Now, I can only suppose the rabbi never read this passage in Matthew chapter 6. I've also seen techniques used by the church to give recognition so that congregation members would be most conspicuous if they did not give. It goes without saying that anything along the lines of what I just told you goes against the spirit of the instruction that Christ uttered in this verse. Now, Yeshua calls those that give in order to seek personal recognition from their fellow Jews, hypocrites. While the Greek term is hypocrites, and it literally refers to an actor who wears a mask as he plays a role in the, in the theater, the overall idea of it is of someone who is pretending to be something he isn't. Notice that Christ says it is at the synagogues and in the streets where this practice occurs of making sure that one gets public recognition for giving charity to the poor. So the person doing it is disguising his evil heart by doing something that looks wonderful pious on the surface. Jesus is not advocating anything different than the norm. We have much written evidence in the ancient Jewish writings of that same thought. For instance, in the Talmudic tractate Baba Batra, Rabbi Eleazar is quoted as saying, a man who gives charity in secret is greater than Moses, our teacher. In another passage from, an, from that same document, we find charity, tzedakah, saves from death if 
the giver does not know to whom he's giving, and the receiver does not know from whom he receives. Thus, Yeshua says that the only reward that the hypocrite will receive is the one he already has, the admiration of those he preferred, those who looked on as he gave. In verse 3, the crowd is told not to let their left hand know what their right hand's doing. Now, if this was kind of a saying of that time, here in the New Testament is the only Jewish document ever found that contains it. So it may be a unique saying of Jesus. Now, in trying to understand the actual meaning of it, as this would have expressed to a crowd of first century Jews, we need to look to Jewish culture and most Middle Eastern culture of that era, whereby the right hand was perceived as the strong hand, the best hand. It was the dominant, it was the authoritative hand, both symbolically and actually. Left-handed dominant people were a rarity. Therefore, the idea seems to be that there is no need for other parts of one's body to know what the hand of authority, the right hand, is doing, in this case, giving to charity. The left hand has no right to question the actions of the right hand, or even to know about it. See, this way the giving is done in secret. Secret actually more means private. Private and without notice or fanfare, perhaps without having second thoughts about it. This is righteous giving. This is giving in the proper spirit. The good news is, says Christ, says Christ that the Father knows all of our secrets anyway. So He sees all that we do. He knows all of our hidden thoughts, all of our motives. And he knows if indeed our secret giving is about compassion, loving our neighbor, and obedience, or if it's not. Therefore, the Father will be the source of whatever reward might be due to us. This, of course, sets up the dynamic that we all must continually and without fail ask ourselves. And here's the question. Whom do we choose to please? If we have the inward motive of seeking humanity's admiration and praise by means of our giving, we automatically do not receive God's praise and reward. You know, perhaps <clears throat> this is a good time to say something that I, as the head of Seed of Abraham Ministries, have never said outside of our staff meetings, but I adhere to it even though it, it might be out of the norm. So many of you present here, out in the internet world and on television, are the most gracious and generous supporters of this ministry. I mean, I honestly get a little emotional just thinking about it. Some of you have donated substantial amounts. 
you received a heartfelt thank you letter. However, what you didn't receive was a gift, depending on the level of your giving. Whether you gave a little or whether you gave a lot, you got the same letter. You weren't enticed to get a bigger gift if you give a bigger donation. You also weren't brought up on this stage and thanked before the congregation for your large donation. Why? For your sake. Because I don't want any part of tempting anyone to give in the motivation of getting personal recognition, whereby that recognition causes you to lose your reward in heaven. I don't want you to exchange an eternal reward for such a fleeting one. And you know what? I've not had one person in the nearly 20 years of this ministry's existence ask for a gift or stop giving because they didn't receive one, so far as I know. Nor has anyone asked for special recognition or of any kind upon them giving to us. Honestly, I tell you, if that was the condition, I would have returned the gift. This tells me that your giving is and it has been in exactly the right spirit and in exactly the right intent. And so your praise now is going to be coming not from me, but from your heavenly Father. Well, next, having addressed this issue of money and of giving, Christ turns to how we ought to pray. Notice, Yeshua says, when you pray, not if you pray. Prayer was a serious, everyday matter for Jews of that era. It was rather usual for pious Jews to pray three times a day, something that seems to have begun during their exile up in Babylon, perhaps as an example or maybe even an instruction from Daniel. Now, praying in public was normal because the spiritual was a natural part of everyday life back then. Sadly, that seems almost strange to us in the West, where our society generally expects us to, to compartmentalize our faith, to keep it quiet, where our prayers are subdued and, and completely out of sight. Now, a few years ago, I was at a restaurant with my family, and as we held hands and prayed, as we always do, I overheard a lady in a nearby table whisper to her dining companion, is that legal? She was quite concerned and very serious. However, just as there is a proper attitude for the giving of charity and an improper one, there is always a proper way to pray, and there's an improper one. Yeshua cites the improper way first, and he says, do not be like the hypocrites. Now remember, the way the word hypocrite was taken to mean at that time was someone who was masquerading as being someone else. They were hiding who they really are. 
And how do they do this? Very similarly to the hypocrites who give money to the poor. It is by praying very publicly so that the public will acknowledge and admire them for their seeming generosity and, and piety. So Christ's crowd is told not to stand on street corners or even in the synagogues where people will see them praying in some kind of way that I suppose you can't not notice. I have to tell you, I think what Christ has set up to this point can be taken as pretty severe, maybe even a little harsh. In fact, more than a few Bible commentators say that what we are reading is Matthew's worldview and not Jesus's, because they just can't see a passive, restrained, loving Jesus saying such things. However, this is neither the first nor the last time Yeshua is going to be blunt and frank about the actions and the insincerity that he has observed among his countrymen in a number of settings for the purpose of a kind of a, a race to the top to see who can be publicly seen as the most devout worshiper of God. I want to be clear on this matter, though. Is it wrong to pray in the synagogue? Is it bad to pray on a street corner? Well, of course not. See, the issue is not prayer. It's the misuse of prayer in order to get self-attention. Right back to it. Motive, intent. Motive, intent. People who pray in this improper manner will like the givers to the poor, who do it with the motivation of self-recognition, they will get no praise. They will get no well done from the Father. So after telling the crowd what they should not do, now he tells them what they should do. They should go into their room, close the door, pray to the Father in secret. Now, although we're very early on, in Matthew's Gospel, I can tell you that in all the Gospel accounts, we will never find Yeshua telling people to pray to Him. It is always to the Father that Jesus says prayer and honor are to be directed. Even more, our praying ought to be in private, He says. Now, once more, is it wrong? when we pray outdoors in public? No. Is it wrong to pray indoors like in a sanctuary with others observing you? No. What is wrong is to pray in the wrong attitude, with the wrong motive, and perhaps even to the wrong God in whatever the setting might be. So just like giving is to be done secretly, more meaning giving without drawing attention to oneself or expecting something in return. So is prayer to be done secretly without the intent of drawing attention to oneself. And instead, it should be with the intent of having a personal conversation and relationship with the God of the universe. <clears throat> you know, many years ago, as I read this passage, it profoundly instructed and convicted me. See, I'm one 
who has always had a hard time praying silently, which was really my usual way of prayer. It didn't take very long before my mind began to wander. And pretty soon I was thinking about a matter at work or having to mow the lawn or something else. I couldn't even remember what I was praying. Now, interestingly, I don't even think we find the concept of truly silent prayer in the Bible, or at least silent prayer being the norm. Now, by silent prayer, I mean that the mouth plays no role and that the only organ involved is our brain. Now, although now that I've said it, I'm pretty sure someone will find an instance of silent prayer in the Bible and point it out to be that nonetheless, using one's mouth, whether in a nearly inaudible whisper or a shout, was the customary manner of prayer, other than perhaps merely reading a prayer silently. The idea of sitting in my room by myself, my door shut, and praying out loud sounded, sounded odd to me. However, I tried it. Suddenly, I could pray without my mind wandering. Hearing the words that were coming from my own mouth caused me to pray in full, intelligible thoughts. Speaking to the Lord out loud makes it feel much more intimate and real for me. Now, this is not to say that this is or should be every believer's prayer experience. So what is the Father's reward to us for proper prayer? The Greek word for reward is apodidomi, apodidomi, and it is usually translated to English as reward. Now the Greek lexicons explain it means to restore or to repay or to recompense in proportion to what was done, good or bad. Clearly, that last meaning is the appropriate one for this situation. Therefore, considering the context, it can only be that God's reward for proper prayer is He responds to it in kind. That doesn't mean we always get what we want. Rather, it means that He will graciously pay attention and He will consider our prayers as opposed to ignoring them. God sets conditions for listening to prayer and for answering them. Yeshua addresses that in a few more verses. But first, I want to say something to you about prayer in general. Number one, there's no trick to it. If you can talk, you can pray. Eloquence is not required. And even if you can't talk due to some physical problem, you can still communicate to God with your mind and your soul. Now, shortly, we're going to read an example that the Messiah gives us about the nature of a proper prayer. But as I zoomed around the web, looking at what various Christian and Bible websites had to say about it, had to say about proper prayer, they nearly all spoke about it along these lines. God created us. And he knows infinitely more than we know. He knows what's best for us, what would not be good for us. And if you have children when they were very small, sometimes they asked for things that were not good for them or would harm them. And for good reasons, sometimes parents do not always give their children what they ask for 
when they ask for it. Parents give them what's best for them. Sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? However, that is decidedly not what proper prayer is about. Notice the prodigious use of the thought, what's good for us, what's always best for us, because of this modern tendency of Christians to think of God as a kind of genie who grants our personal wishes, and our Savior who is here mainly for our hopes and dreams to be realized. Then this theme of God does what is best for us is practically universal within the church. However, comforting that might all sound to us, it is just not biblical reality. God does what His purposes are. God does what His will is. And that goes for answering prayers. See, making us happy is not usually at the top of the list. In fact, often God will answer a prayer in a way that isn't best for us personally, from almost any worldview we can think of it. But rather, He has another, He has a greater purpose in mind that we may never know about. Although, sometimes later on we might see the fruits of it. See, the goal of prayer ought to be to discover how we can best fit into the Father's plans, not how He should fit into our plans. That is not to say that when we have needs or even desires that we shouldn't go to Him in prayer. When we're ill or when we're injured, we should pray for healing. If we're afraid, if we're in dire straits financially, if we're in some kind of great danger, and scores more reasons, our first response ought to be prayer, proper prayer. But any thought that this response is all about our earthly personal best is simply incorrect, even though many times the thing we want so badly indeed comes about. What we need to be more concerned about in our prayers is our eternal best. And that, says Christ, is to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven as opposed to being greatest on earth. And this greatness comes not from our will being done, but from seeking His will and following His laws and commandments. See, prayer first and foremost must be an act of our humility and our submission, an act of seeking, not of instructing. Being a believer gives us an audience before the King, but it does not guarantee the outcome we want. One final thought. Throughout the Gospels, we find Yeshua seeking solitude when he prays. So his instructions that we should pray secretly are no more nor less than what he personally did when he was on earth. Well, <clears throat> in verse 7, Christ gives us another negative instruction. In other words, what we should not do. We should not babble on and on when we pray, because, he says, that's what the pagans do. 
please notice pagans pray too so in our time when we think of pagans mostly as the, the godless the atheists in fact pagan simply means those who do not do not worship Yehovah as their only God see there is no ancient record of any society anywhere on earth that were atheist atheism was an invention of the academic elite early in the 18th century in Europe it ought to be instructional to everyone everywhere that for however long one believes that mankind has existed whether that is 6,000 or 6 million years only in the past 300 years has the notion of there being no God or gods has that been fabricated in Jesus day everyone of every culture had some means and intent of praying to their gods and indeed so did the occupying Romans in Christ's day the Holy Land was overrun with curious Gentiles and this was especially so in Jerusalem where Herod's temple was thought of as one of the wonders of the world so it was a must to come and visit it and then there were the 95% of all living Jews who lived outside of the Holy Land and therefore among these same these uh, Jews lived with with Gentiles Gentile majority knowing how the pagans prayed well that was just common knowledge for the Jews they knew how the pagans prayed and apparently a lot of pagan religionists believed that the longer and the louder and the more public one prayed their gods would hear them better and therefore the worshiper would have a lot better shot at getting what he wants now because the Jews were just surrounded by these Gentiles it's human nature that some would take on some of the customs and traits they witnessed happening you know because it just seemed good to them and remember few of the Jews in the crowd sitting before Yeshua had much actual Torah knowledge what they had was tradition knowledge so they followed whomever it was that was leading them in the synagogue instead Jesus says in verse 8 don't be like them don't be like them then he tells us why we shouldn't even this however was not a new instruction that Yeshua came up with it was a long established biblical instruction Ecclesiastes 5 1 or could be 2 in your Bibles do not speak impulsively do not be in a hurry to give voice to your words before God for God is in heaven and you are on earth so let your words be few it is because the Father already knows all of our wants all of our desires he knows our circumstances we don't need to go on and on in our prayers he already knows what our prayer is about before we ever pray it I would be dishonest if I did not confess that every now and then I wonder if I should pray about something because the Father already knows about it and since his pre knowledge of it is the case for every instance then it is not unreasonable to ask 
So why should we pray? Well, we pray for two reasons. First, because it is the God's, it is God's instruction and His will that we do. Whether you read the Old Testament or the New, that's what God demands of us. Second, because prayer is therefore beneficial to us and to the kingdom. Prayer is part of the shalom, the divinely given well-being that God affords His worshipers. By praying, we are obeying the Lord. By praying, we are communing with God. What a great privilege to be able to do that. And while communing with God is something He wants, we, not He, are the beneficiaries of it. Thus, biblically, regular prayer is a given. Yeshua is only reminding people what proper prayer looks like. Now, when we are especially nervous, or maybe we're very anxious, we can tend to get pretty long-winded in our prayers. Nervousness and anxiety, you see, are the opposite of having a stillness of mind. And having stillness of mind is a very hard thing to come by, especially if we are in some kind of bad situation. Now, however simplistic it might sound, the only means to achieve a stillness of mind is complete and sincere trust in God. Therefore, what comes next in Matthew is intended to be a means to achieve that stillness of mind and to maintain it. It is a quite short prayer that for centuries has been called the Lord's Prayer. It begins in verse 9. Now, we've already read it in the complete Jewish Bible, but I'd like you to hear at least a couple of verses from other versions. Not so much because they interpret what's said differently, but because the words chosen for the interpretation can mean something a little bit different to us when we hear them. Listen to this Lord's Prayer from the King James Version. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In the uh, NAS Bible, we hear this. Pray then in this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, because prayer is so crucial in the life of a believer and in our relationship with God, we're going to go through the example of prayer that Christ gives us of just what the proper elements of prayer ought to look like. The very first words uttered are, Our Father. Yeah, cannot be said enough times, it cannot be said strongly enough, that due to the doctrines of modern Christianity, 
Never does Christ instruct that we pray to Him. Always He instructs we are to pray to the Father. The implications behind this are so many, and they cause a lot of debate within the church, such that that, that entire denominations are founded on the conclusions about these implications. And at the top of that list of implications is about the nature of the Trinity. Now, I'm confronted often about this issue of the Trinity. People will ask me if I accept the Trinity doctrine, and my response is always the same. Which one? Folks of every denomination have their own version of a Trinity doctrine, which range from rejecting the notion outright, all the way up to deciding which of the persons or attributes of God ought to be included. Now, among evangelical Christians, the most common version is that God consists totally and only of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And thus, every manifestation of God that we learn of in the Bible must be one of these three persons, even when they are given different names and characteristics. Further, this popular version of the Trinity doctrine declares that the three persons are co-equal. There is no hierarchy. And even though there are three persons, they are yet but one God. Therefore, they all have the same power, the same purpose, the same wisdom, and they share the same knowledge. Without addressing every one of these issues and a few more, I'll only say this. The Trinity doctrine is man-made. Never is it stated in the Bible. The closest thing to a direct statement comes in Matthew 28, which we'll eventually get to. Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go and make people from all nations into Talmudim disciples, immersing them into the reality of the Father, the Son, and the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. So, all the rest of the definition of a Trinity doctrine, or better, of the several Trinity doctrines, is an interpretation and an an amalgamation of several biblical passages that arrives at a certain belief about the nature and the substance of God. I'm not going to get into defending or disagreeing with them all, and I probably am not even aware of every one of this wide range of them. But I can tell you this with absolute confidence. In the Gospels, Christ never suggests anything but praying to the Father. He himself is found, in several occasions, praying to the Father. So it's an absurdity to suggest that in reality, some believe there is no divine hierarchy of the person, so he has to be praying to himself. I mean, according to Jesus' own words, the way, the manner, and the person to whom prayer is to be directed according to the example he gives, the Lord's Prayer, is the Father and the Father alone. Okay, now we're going to stop for now to give the Lord's Prayer our fullest attention and study next time.